So hey, are you a person who is inquisitive? Uh, no doubt some of us are more inquisitive than others, but, but all of us have questions, right? Uh, questions like, why is Iceland green and Greenland ice? Or, or questions like, how do they fit all of those clowns in that tiny little car at the circus? Uh, you may not ask those questions or wonder about those things, but many of us do. Uh, maybe nobody else but me, I don't know. But I'm guessing there's at least one thing that most of us wonder about, at least from time to time, and that is the idea of God. And I don't know this for sure, but I have a hunch that most of us began asking questions about God, at least internally, when we were really, really young, when we were kids. In fact, kids, they tend to ask some of the very best questions about God, right? I'll share with you a few questions from kids that were captured in a book called Letters to God. Uh, this is a question that comes from a little boy by the name of Brandon. He says, God, I bet it's very hard for you to love all of everybody in the whole world. How do you do it? There are only four people in our family, and I can never do it. <laughs> uh, this question comes from a little girl by the name of Lucy, and Lucy says, Dear God, are you really invisible, or is that just a trick? Uh, this is more of a suggestion than it is a question, but I thought it was worth sharing with you this morning. This comes from Jackson. Jackson says, Dear God, maybe Cain and Abel would not kill each other so much if they had their own rooms. It works for me and my brother. <laughs> That's a pretty good suggestion. Hey, for those of you who are joining us for the very first time, uh, welcome. I am so glad that you're here this morning. We are in the second week of a sermon series entitled Explore God. And in this sermon series, we're looking at the, some of the big questions that most people have about God and faith. And whether you are a person who believes in God or you don't believe in God, or maybe you're kind of stuck in the middle, verdict's still out, you're not quite sure, please know that we want this to be a safe sp space for open and honest conversation. Now, admittedly, this is a pretty one-way conversation at this particular moment because I'm the only one who's talking, right? But it's our hope that this conversation, this dialogue, will continue throughout the week with others. In fact, if you're interested, we have conversation groups that take place throughout the week at various times where you can share your thoughts and your ideas and just kind of dive into this a little bit deeper. Those conversation groups, the time and the meeting place, you'll find a list in our Welcome Center. And so feel free to stop by. If you can't find it, there'll be people in the Welcome Center who can point you to that. Of course, if you're here this morning, you're thinking what I'd really like is a one-on-one -on -one conversation, uh, please let me know. Uh, besides myself, there are other men and women who would just absolutely love to grab a cup of coffee and sit down with you and, and talk about these big questions and, and these topics. Uh, please know this. It's not our desire or not our agenda to try to strong arm you into believing what we believe. We simply want to prove ourselves to be people who are safe to wander with. And so let's have that together. So let's dive in this morning. Here's the question for today. Does God exist? Does he exist? Well, the answer to that question kind of depends on who you are, right? If you are a person of faith, the answer is yes. If you are a person of science, the answer is no. One thing you can't be is both, right? I, I, I mean, after all, Science has proven to us, or at least is well on its way to proving, 
that God does not exist. Uh, these are the world words of Carl Sagan. He puts it like this, as science advances, there seems to be less and less for God to do. Whatever we cannot explain is attributed to God, and then after a while, we explain it, and so that's no longer God's realm. Now, as we are well aware, science has given us tremendous new understanding about the nature of the universe and humanity over the past century. But has all of this new information led to a consensus among those in the science field that there is no God? Well, in 1916, a study was done by a psychologist, and he asked this particular question of those in the, who are scientists. He asked this question, do you believe that there is a God who personally communicates with humans today, even through something like prayer? 40% answered the, in the affirmative. 20% uh, said, you know what, I'm not really sure. And then 40% said, no. Now, please keep in mind that 40% who said no were not saying, no, there is no God. They were simply saying, I don't believe there's a God who personally communicates with humanity today. That's 1916. Fast forward to 1997. 1997, two sociologists, they repeat the exact same study, ask the exact same question. Guess what the results were? Even though we have this wealth of new information that science has provided, there has been zero percentage change in what people believe. There are still 40% who say, yes, there is a God, and 20% who say, I'm not really sure, and 40% who say, no. How can that be? How can there be so many men and women who are equally devoted to their field of scientific research and study come to such different conclusions? And the answer you know, of course, is this. There is no possible way, it's flat out impossible to prove or disprove the existence of God. You just can't do it. The very best thing you can do is look for evidence that points to support a particular claim. So while there are some very, very smart people in the world who say this, that it is far more intellectually honest to come to the conclusion that there is no God, there is just as many smart people scientists, philosophers who say there is overwhelming evidence for the existence of God. Let me mention one of those really smart dudes. His name's Albert Einstein. Now, to be fair, from what I understand, Albert Einstein did not believe in a personal God. But there are quotes in which it seems to indicate that there is a belief in a force or a being that is far superior to humanity. Read one of his quotes. He says this, everyone who is seriously committed to the cultivation of science becomes convinced that in all the laws of the universe is manifest a spirit vastly superior to man and to which we with our powers must feel humble. In his book, The Reason for God, Tim Keller writes this, Though there cannot be irrefutable proof for the existence of God, many people have found strong clues for his reality, divine fingerprints in many places. So where does one find such clues? 
The biblical writers insist that one of the very best places to look for clues or evidences of God is in the universe itself. And so I made a mistake and I walked up here without my reading glasses. And so I want to ask you to turn to Psalm 19. And while you're turning to Psalm 19 on your devices or in your Bible, I'm going to walk down and get my glasses real quick. (laughs) This is the word of the Lord. The heavens proclaim the glory of God. The skies display his craftsmanship. Day after day, they continue to speak. Night after night, they make him known. They speak without a sound or word. Their voice is never heard. Yet their message has gone throughout the earth and their words to all the world. Paul plays off this thought in the first chapter of Romans. In Romans chapter 1, verse 18 through 20, he writes, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. The workings of nature, the beauty of a sunrise or a sunset, the vastness of the universe, the magnitude of the galaxies, the laws of nature, these are evidences, the scripture writers say, of the existence of God. But obviously not everyone agrees. And one person who adamantly disagrees is the evolutionary biologist Richard Dawkins. In his book, Climbing Mount Improbable, he uses this uh, picture of a rock in Maui, this particular picture, and he says, this shows that it's unreliable to look at nature to point to the existence of God. So he shows the picture and then he says this, You might look at this nice silhouette of JFK and wonder, did someone actually carve this rock to have it cast this sort of shadow? You can answer that question by going and studying the rock. Turns out the rock gives no evidence of having been chiseled at all, simply a product of natural weathering. Now maybe Dawkins is on to something here because there are a lot of rocks out there that by just the the work of nature have come to look like something. Let me share just a few with you here this morning. Look at those. Look like elephants, right? That's pretty cool. How about this one that looks like a polar bear? Yeah. Or how about this one that looks like a face? Now, I'll share one more with you because this one is the most spectacular one. Look look at that one. That's amazing. Isn't isn't amazing what wind and rain and hail has been able to create uh, in our universe? Now, obviously, We know that this is not simply the product of nature being at work, but it it took some man-made ingenuity and design to bring about Mount Rushmore. Uh, My family, they live about 20 minutes from Mount Rushmore, so I've I've been there, and I've seen the pictures in which you actually see the people who are chiseling all that out, and I suppose if you could get permission and get close enough, you could go up and see the chisel marks and touch the chisel marks, and you understand that that's the design of creation of a person. 
So we come back to this question. Is there greater evidence in the universe for all of this coming about by chance, or does the evidence point to a designer? Let's think for just a moment about the origin of the universe. Let's think about how it all began. As you are well aware, the prevailing theory among scientists of the world's beginning is referred to as the Big Bang. Astronomers such as Edwin Hubble were able to develop measurements that helped us realize that things in the universe, they're, they're moving farther and farther apart. The universe is expanding. And so the theory goes that if you kind of play this movie backwards, that everything begins to come back together and eventually it all arrives at just one single point. And the theory says that that single point is what is a big bang that, that it created, brought all of this, all that you see and all that you are, into existence. Now, is that theory correct? Doesn't matter. Not to me, at least not right now. And I'll explain why in just a few moments. What I do want to share with you is what I believe is most pertinent to this particular conversation. And that is this, that this theory, theory was not first suggested until 1926, and it didn't gain much traction for 35 years. And why is that? Well, it's because it made scientists, many, incredibly uncomfortable. Uh, now, why did it make them uncomfortable? Well, since the time of Aristotle, there is a concept called contingency that has been an important pro pro part of science. And that is the idea that if something begins to exist, its existence is dependent on something outside of it that preexisted it, causing it to exist or come into being. In other words, a big bang implies a beginning, and a beginning requires an equally big cause. Now, it was this line of reasoning that convinced one of the most well-known, respected, important scientists of the past century, Dr. Francis Collins, to come to the conclusion there, there is a God who created all of this. Now, for those of you who may not be familiar with Francis Collins, he served as the director of the National Institute for Health for a number of years, but he is most well-known for his work in mapping the human genome. Collins is decorated and he is uh, widely respected in the scientific community. And his, in his book, The Knowledge of God, or The Language of God, rather, Dr. Collins shares these words. We have this very solid conclusion that the universe had an origin, the Big Bang. 15 billion years ago, the universe began with an unimaginably bright flash of energy from an infinitesimal small point. That implies that before that, there was nothing. I can't imagine how nature, in this case the universe, could have created itself. The very fact that the universe had a beginning implies that someone was able to begin it, and it seems to me that had to be outside of nature. Now, unlike Dr. Collins, the famed cosmologist Stephen Hawking is held to his atheism, but at the same time he conceded on this point that the implications of a definitive beginning of the universe would have to point to a creator. In his book, The Brief History of Time, he writes this, so long as the universe had a beginning, we could suppose it had a creator. 
Now, I recognize that everyone, not everyone here, believes that the universe began with a Big Bang. There are those of you who hold to a six-day creation. And you might be hoping this morning that I'll weigh in on that conversation. And uh, I, I'm going to go ahead and weigh in on that conversation. But first, I want us to revisit the creation account as recorded in Scripture. And I'd like to ask you to stand at this time for the reading of God's Word. Genesis chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. We're not going to read the whole account. I'll read 1 through 5 and then go to day 6, 26 through 31. We start with day 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. The Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be lights. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. Verse 26. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that we may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. To all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Hear the word of the Lord. Please be seated. All right, so let me bullet point for you what I believe to be absolutely true from this ancient text. Number one, the creation had a creator. Number two, that the design we see in the universe comes from a designer. Number three, that even if there was a Big Bang, it demands a Big Banger. <laughs> the number four, that mind created matter, not the other way around. The number five, the existence of life did not come about by chance. The number six, that all of humanity reflects the moral and relational God who created us. All right, so some of you might be thinking, now wait a minute, Smith. If you're not willing to affirm that God created the universe in six literal 24-hour time period, you are undermining Scripture. Because Scripture says He created it in six days. And you are exactly right. That is what the Scriptures say. But we need to take into consideration what Scripture is actually doing. 
Let me try to explain it this way. Are there science facts located in Scripture? Yes, there are, no doubt. But the purpose of Scripture is so much larger. Scripture is the God-breathed story of God. It is not a science or history textbook. I like the way Dr. Robert Mitchell puts it. He says this, The Bible is the inspired Word of God, so if we read something in the Bible and interpret it as a scientific fact, either it is true or we have read something into that passage that God didn't intend. He then goes on to give an example of how this has played out in the past, and he says this, In 1615, the scientist Galileo was arguing for the theory that the earth revolved around the sun and not the other way around. The Catholic Church in particular was adamant that this was not true and in fact sent him to jail for the rest of his life because of his stand. Bible verses that on the surface seemed to oppose Galileo were Ecclesiastes chapter 1 and verse 5, and the sun rises and sets and returns to its place. In Psalm 104 verse 5, the Lord sets the earth on its foundations, it can never be moved. In hindsight, most of us now agree with Galileo. And when we look at these verses in the Bible, we see the context of these verses. Solomon in Ecclesiastes was speaking about how repetitive life is, not getting into the physics of the solar system. The writer of Psalm 104 was revealing a sweeping, powerful, powerful view of God the Creator and of His creation. And when we read that He wraps Himself in light and makes the clouds His chariot, we don't try to turn that into a scientific theory. Now, listen, I'm not saying that God couldn't or that God didn't create the world in six literal days. Please hear me. The Big Bang theory is just a theory. It's not a scientific fact. But here's what I want to impress upon us as followers of Jesus, is that science needs to be viewed as our friend and not as a threat to our faith. And in moments when science reveals things to us about the, the way our universe operates and the way that we operate as human beings, and it push, pushes us to read Scripture differently, perhaps more accurately, we should find joy in that and shouldn't be upset or threatened or defensive because we want to read the text in the best possible way that we can. Remember this, God is the author of science. Science isn't the author of God. And so there's no reason for us to be threatened by it. All right, a second piece of evidence that points to a creator is the infinitesimal odds of a planet like ours, a planet that can support human life coming into existence of it on its own. I want to share with you a five-minute video. It's a little bit longer video than I typically show. Just one second before we start it, but wait, just In one second. I'm going to show this video, okay, and it's going to talk about just how fine-tuned the universe has to be for us to actually be sitting here this morning. Now, I want to make a disclaimer real quick because some of you are into politics and all that kind of stuff. And the, the speaker on here, you may not agree with the politics. I'm not endorsing anything that he said politically ever, uh, but I happen to believe that what he has to share here is really important and really good stuff. And so let's watch this video together. In 1966, Time Magazine ran a cover story asking, is God dead? 
The cover reflected the fact that many people had accepted the cultural narrative that God is obsolete, that as science progresses, there's less need for a God to explain the universe. It turns out, though, that the rumors of God's death were premature. In fact, perhaps the best arguments for his existence come from, of all places, science itself. Here's the story. The same year Time featured its now famous headline, the astronomer Carl Sagan announced that there were two necessary criteria for a planet to support life, the right kind of star and a planet the right distance from that star. Given the roughly octillion planets in the universe, that's one followed by 24 zeros, there should have been about septillion planets, that's one followed by 21 zeros, capable of supporting life. With such spectacular odds, scientists were optimistic that the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, known by its initials SETI, an ambitious project launched in the 1960s, was sure to turn up something soon. With a vast radio telescopic network, scientists listened for signals that resembled coded intelligence. But as the years passed, the silence from the universe was deafening. As of 2014, researchers have discovered precisely bubkis, not a zilch, which is to say zero followed by an infinite number of zeros. What happened? As our knowledge of the universe increased, it became clear that there were, in fact, far more factors necessary for life, let alone intelligent life, than Sagan supposed. His two parameters grew to 10, then 20, and then 50, which meant that the number of potentially life-supporting planets decreased accordingly. The number dropped to a few thousand planets and kept on plummeting. Even SETI proponents acknowledged the problem. Peter Schenkel wrote in a 2006 piece for Skeptical Inquirer, a magazine that strongly affirms atheism, in light of new findings and insights, we should quietly admit that the early estimates may no longer be tenable. Today, there are more than 200 known parameters necessary for a planet to support life, every single one of which must be perfectly met or the whole thing falls apart. For example, without a massive, gravity-rich planet like Jupiter nearby to draw away asteroids, Earth would be more like an interstellar dartboard than the verdant orb that it is. Simply put, the odds against life in the universe are astonishing. Yet, here we are, not only existing, but talking about existing. What can account for it? Can every one of those many parameters have been perfectly met by accident? At what point is it fair to admit that it is science itself that suggests that we cannot be the result of random forces? Doesn't assuming that an intelligence created these perfect conditions in fact require far less faith than believing that a life-sustaining Earth just happened to beat the inconceivable odds? But wait, there's more. The fine-tuning necessary for life to exist on a planet is nothing compared with the fine-tuning required for the universe to exist at all. For example, astrophysicists now know that the values of the four fundamental forces, gravity, the electromagnetic force, and the strong and weak nuclear forces, were determined less than one millionth of a second after the Big Bang. Alter any one of these four values ever so slightly, and the universe as we know it could not exist. For instance, if the ratio between the strong nuclear force 
and the electromagnetic force had been off by the tiniest fraction of the tiniest inconceivable fraction, then no stars could have formed at all. Multiply that single parameter by all the other necessary conditions, and the odds against the universe existing are so heart-stoppingly astronomical that the notion that it all just happened defies common sense. It would be like tossing a coin and having it come up heads 10 quintillion times in a row. I don't think so. Fred Hoyle, the astronomer who coined the term Big Bang, said that his atheism was greatly shaken by these developments. One of the world's most renowned theoretical physicists, Paul Davies, has said that the appearance of design is overwhelming. Even the late Christopher Hitchens, one of atheism's most aggressive proponents, conceded that without question, the fine-tuning argument was the most powerful argument of the other side. Oxford University professor of mathematics, Dr. John Lennox, has said, the more we get to know about our universe, the more the hypothesis that there is a creator gains in credibility as the best explanation of why we are here. The greatest miracle of all time is the universe. It is the miracle of all miracles, one that inescapably points to something or someone beyond itself. I'm Eric Metaxas for Prager University. What I think about those crazy odds for us actually being here this morning, living, breathing, enjoying life, I personally have come to the conclusion that no truer words could have been spoken than the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 45 and verse 18. He who created the heavens, he is God. He who fashioned and made the earth, he, God, founded it. He, God, did not create it to be empty, but formed it to be inhabited. Well, let me mention, as you well know, science is just one place that you can look to for evidence that points to the existence of God. There are so many other places as well. Uh, think about just the fact of what we call morality, uh, the sense of right and wrong that we all share and have, the need for justice. Where exactly does that come from? Uh, and if God doesn't exist, does it really matter? Uh, consider our longing for beauty and love. Think for a moment just about all the fulfillment of prophecies. And we'll look at a few of those prophecies in just a few weeks. Think about this internal question that we have of, is there a God? Or isn't God, where did that exactly come from? And consider personal experience. There are so many people who at one time held the view that there was no God, but then had some kind of encounter, some type of life-changing experience that absolutely convinced them that there is a God worth knowing. Those are questions that I would encourage you to maybe continue to dialogue about this week. Uh, to consider as you spend time in your Explore God discussion groups. So as we wrap this up, uh, just a few concluding uh, thoughts. For those of you who do believe in God, that he exists, I have a question for you this morning. The question is simply this. Are you living like he exists? I had a conversation with a, a guy just this past week. We had communicated on phone, but we had never met in person before, and he reached out and said, can we meet? And I said, of course we can. So we got together, and we sat down, and we just kind of shared our stories and shared things that had happened in life. And at some point, 
I asked him this particular question, were you raised in a church? And he said, yes, I was. He said, uh, I grew up going to church. I grew up reading scripture. I grew up praying. But he said, you know what? I lived a completely self-sufficient life. And it wasn't until my life fell apart that I began to live for God. That's the story for so many of us, isn't it? And if we're just honest this morning, we tend to kind of weave in and out of this, where we have this deep conviction there is a God and we're devoted to Him, and then we kind of weave out and we've got it all under control and we can call every shot and we can make our decisions and we don't give much acknowledgement to Him. And I want to convict us, I want to plead with us that if we truly believe God does exist, that we allow Him to rule over our lives because it is His universe and our lives belong to Him. Now, for those of you who are here this morning, you're not sure. You're on the bubble. You've been considering this question for some time. I, I want to challenge you to do this. I want to challenge you to pray this simple prayer over and over again. God, if you are real, please make yourself known to me. If you are real, make yourself known to me. And as you pray that prayer, I want to encourage you to begin to read Scripture. And I would encourage you to start in the New Testament with the story of Jesus. And so you're reading through Matthew or Mark or Luke or John about Jesus, and you're praying this prayer. And let's just be open to what may happen. Now, for those of you who are here this morning and you're thinking, you know what, those are all straw man arguments. I can poke holes in every single one of them. I do not believe in the existence of God. You cannot convince me this morning that he does exist. I respect that. And I, for one, in no way pretend to be a person who has much knowledge about all this science stuff, okay? I know so many of you know much more than I do. But my challenge to you this morning is this. Read on both sides of the aisle. For every Dawkins book you read, read something by Francis Collins. For every Hawking book you read, read something by Tim Keller. Followers of Jesus, I'd encourage you to do the same. We want to pursue truth. Let's pursue it and see where it leads us. But so far in my life, it's led me right back to God every single time. 